Welcome to How I Did It, where coders philanthropy and social capital team find out how successful leaders do what they do in the world of philanthropy and social leadership. Hello, you're listening to David Knowles, head of coders philanthropy and social capital team. In this episode, I'm talking to David Gonski, a philanthropist who's also one of Australia's most influential businessmen. David's chairman of the Australia and New Zealand Banking Group at the moment, and also Chancellor of University of New South Wales, President of the Art Gallery of New South Wales Trust and Chairman of the UNSW Foundation. He was previously a member of the Takeovers panel and has chaired the Sydney Theatre Company, the Australian Securities Exchange Limited, the Guardians of the Future Fund, the Australia Council for the Arts and the Board of Trustees of Sydney Grammar School. Welcome, David. How are you? I'm well. Nice Good. to speak with you. Likewise. Um, I'm going to start with uh, a description of you that you hear from time to time, the chairman of everything, uh, and a number. Sometimes um, a number of, of 40 is mentioned when people talk about you being um, on boards. So my first question is, is, is that number anywhere near true? And regardless of whether it's true or not, how do you manage to fare within, David? You, you, you must be insanely busy. Well, David, the first thing is, no, it's not true at the moment. Um, when that number was calculated, which is a long time ago, they calculated all the companies I was on the board of. And when you're on big companies, they have multiple subsidiaries. And it was interesting, one of the companies I was on, which I'm no longer on, had 27 subsidiaries. So if you took 27 away from 40, uh, as they were all the same group, um, it didn't really have much meaning. Um, today, um, I'm busy, and I'm delighted to be busy. How do I manage it? Well, firstly, I'm not in the management of people day to day. That takes a lot of time. It's a wonderful skill, but it is not something that I have to do today. I am in the non-executive role, whether it be in not-for-profits or for-profits, and that allows me much more time to look more at strategies, to be involved generally in, in companies and institutions and groups, and that allows me to plan my time much better. Yeah, and we'll come back to the idea, because you just mentioned that um, you, you don't have to manage people, but uh, there would be a big element still of that in terms of um, uh, managing the boardroom and managing the people in that boardroom, I imagine. But managing a boardroom or managing, which is the most important, by the way, relationship usually in a company, one's relationship with the CEO or the director or whoever's running the institute, um, these are much different to managing 42,000 people in different spots or even six people in different spots because you're very much involved, and that's what you should be, in the management of their lives. But as a non-executive, you have to discipline yourself that you absolutely want to be involved but you mustn't overmanage. Mm. And in terms of the uh, the current appointments you have and the responsibilities you have, there are a number that sit in the for-profit space. But we're more interested today in those that sit in the not-for-profit space. And I think a number of people would look at the the appointments you have and wonder why you even do it. You have so many things that you could do. Um, you, you could um, limit yourself to directorships in the for-profit world and presumably um, well-paid consultancy work. My observation is what you do in the non-profit space is far from tokenistic. So why do you, why do you get so involved? 
I think there are a number of reasons. The first reason is the true motivation. I come from a medical family, not from a business family. And indeed, my father, my late father, who was a brain surgeon, was often said to say of a leading business person, he's just a business person. Those were the days when business people made lots of money but didn't contribute a great deal. I might say the contrary was also the case for hard-working neurosurgeons who made much less money but contributed considerably. I have it in my DNA that I want to contribute to society. It's part of my life. It's, I do it for myself, by the way. I'm very keen to feel that I'm involved. So that's the first thing that makes me very interested in not-for-profits. The second thing is that I love the innovation, the fact that they're really involved in doing wonderful things. And I have found some of the most interesting people in my life in the not-for-profit space. It gives me a variety, it tests my ingenuity, and I feel very good being involved. And the final thing is that in life you're allowed some passions. My passions, which really are education, mm. but also have strayed to the arts, even though I'm a hopeless artist, <laughs> etc., um, have been really part of my, my life. They've enriched my whole thinking. And you can't do a lot of the education role or the arts role in the for-profit space. There are some mm. companies, but not that many. Mm. So those are my three reasons. And I would never, ever contemplate a life that didn't have those included. Mm. And uh, you talk about your interest in the arts and not being an artist. I, I think I, I and many people appreciate that. I, I, I have no artistic elements to me at all, I would say, but at the end of the day, that's what makes me appreciate great art. Um, well, I should add quickly there, just as an aside for those listening, I got away for years without having to even admit that I was a hopeless artist and probably one of the worst violinists who ever lived and so on. But then one day, as president of the Art Gallery of New South Wales, I had to adjudicate the Archibald Prize, which I've now done 13 times. That's when people start to question whether you know anything about art or whether you're any good at it. And I decided very early on I'd be totally honest and say I'm hopeless, and now after 13 attempts, people accept that. Great. Um, innovation you mentioned a minute ago. A lot of people I know and talk to um, believe that innovation is something the nonprofit sector actually struggles with. Now, what do you say to that? To I, I totally, totally disagree with that. You see, in the for-profit space, the key that one has over the not-for-profit is the ability to get, nurture and keep capital. In the case of the not-for-profit space, it's much harder to get it. You can get donations, but they're hard. You can't issue shares or whatever. Keeping it is also hard because you've got so little of it, and nurturing it is often regarded as more commercial than what you're meant to do. So I have seen so often in the for-profit space that where we come to a fork in the road, where we need to use innovative thinking, that sometimes we resort to just putting more money into play. Whereas when I've gone in the not-for-profit space, and particularly when I think of theatre companies mm. I've been involved in, they've got no money to do nothing. 
and they want to do lots. And so the most innovative thinking comes along, and it comes along in all sorts of ways. From the top, trying to make sure that with little money, one can get the best rights to the best plays and get the best people to act in them. Then going down the thing, you've got somebody who puts on the most fantastic staging of a play with very little money. You know, the concept of how to get across a lake when you can't import a lake or get a film of a lake. Mm -hmm. Just fantastic. So I disagree totally. I've seen innovation um, to the core of running various arts companies and arts ideas. It may be that they haven't sometimes gone with the modern times, but that's not my experience. Mm. Most people in the arts and also in the other not-for-profits I've been involved in are very aware at, of the trends and to the extent that they can possibly do it, manage to keep up with them. Yeah, there was, um, I, I was in Auckland a few years back and I was in the foyer of, a, of an insurance company building and there was a thing on the wall, it was, it was a quotation from a Maori elder and it said we didn't have any money so we had to think I thought that's, that, that's fantastic. And in a way, that's really what you say. Is if you well, you know, have... when you go back to that old quote, um, because I was so busy, I wrote you a long letter rather than a short one. That almost sums up the situation. If you've got yeah. plenty, you don't have to worry so much. When you're constrained, and most not-for-profits I've lived in and been involved in have had that constraint, people come up with the most fantastic innovative thinking. Well, I think in terms of innovation, the board has a really important role to play. A lot of people, again, um, quickly when they think of the non-profit sector, think about the fantastic work that's done and think about that being done by people who are down there in the trenches. Um, maybe they're, even, they're volunteering, they're not even paid employees. And the role of the board, I think, generally speaking, is less well understood. The role of the board in driving innovation, uh, helping with fundraising and other things that are critical to the operation of the organisation from your position, what do you see as the role of a non-profit board? Um, where does it have the greatest impact? I think a not-for-profit board um, is a very important institution. Let me start by saying that. Anyone who joins such expecting it just to be an accolade of honour or indeed something that will be just pleasant and have no hard work associated, I think is the wrong candidate. I think that boards of not-for-profits have a number of roles. First role is obviously to choose who is going to run the organisation. And I might say as part of that role, if they're not doing it, to make the unfortunate decision that you have to part company, etc. So the first is to choose who's to do. Second is to have a look at how the organisation is following, in a similar way to the way we do in the for-profit space. But the third area is I do believe you have an obligation to assist the not-for-profit, if you really believe in it, to do things. And that often means you've got to either, what do they say, get or, or give, get off. Give, get or give, get, get off. Or yeah. get off. Yeah. Um, and I actually believe in that, mm. because you can't just raise capital, as I said earlier, you've got to be, you know, in part responsible for bringing in the necessary monies to do what needs to be done. Mm. So there is an overall process role, 
There is an overall choosing and watching role, but there's also a getting role. And I might also say one of the great privileges of being on a not-for-profit is to try and lift it as well. I think you're entitled as a director to dream, but not to get obsessed with the dream. A board is, a, is made up of majority thinking, sometimes hopefully um, absolute thinking, but not that it's not one person. Mm. And I think within that constraint, you can dream that maybe you know, the university can go to the next stage, the arts situation can do something more, become international, etc. You, you mentioned it, um, just talking there, about the give-get or get-off uh, approach. But a lot of people, as you'd know, um, in Australia are not comfortable with that in terms of not of being a part of the role of the non-profit board. And I often think that the, the only solution really is, is succession planning because it's quite difficult to move the, goal move the goalposts on people and get them to see their job as fundamentally different uh, after they've, they've signed up to take that position on the board. But if I can just say there, David, firstly, I believe very strongly in diversity on boards. <coughs> Most of the time, that is assumed to be diversity of gender. But if I may take that a bit further on a not-for-profit board, I think there are some, because of either their means, their position in society, their personality or whatever, who are very good at helping on the give and get. And that's important you have those people. I'm not totally convinced, though, that everybody has to do that. But when I talked earlier of having to be involved in that, that doesn't mean that because you're not prepared to go out or you're not in a position to either give or get, that you should shut up when you get to that part of the meeting. Mm. We all have, I think, the ability to think. We all have contacts. We all read, whether it be newspapers these days or watch the news or you know, watch the social media. We should all be alive to that. So in summary, I believe everybody should contribute to the thinking but there should be some on a board who are the gets and the, and, and, and the giving department, if I may call it that. And they should be the ones, in my opinion, who take it on. And by the way, it shouldn't be something one fears. One of the biggest contributions ever given to me was when somebody said to me, when you go and ask for money, do not assume that the person you're asking is doing you a favour. Unless, of course, you're asking for money for yourself, which mm. you're not. Yeah. If you're asking for money for a not-for-profit, assume that you're doing that person a favour. Mm. You're offering them the opportunity to be involved, to do something substantial with their money, and indeed to create something that maybe is yet another feather in a, in a successful life uh, that they've already got. Mm. And if you look at it that way, you're a purveyor of something. You shouldn't be ashamed. And by the way, if they say no, that doesn't mean you never talk to them again. That's their right. It's their money. You offer them an opportunity. If they don't want it, that's up to them. There's a great book. I don't know if you've read it. It was, um, uh, it, it was recommended to me by a professor from Harvard Business School called, called Warren McFarlane, who you've probably met. And um, he said, look, this is probably the best book on fundraising I, I've read. It, one of the things that really stood out in that book for me was Howard Stevenson, who raised a lot of money at Harvard, said, 
I never ask someone for money. I invite them to join with me to do something we both believe is really important. That's that's really the essence of it, I suppose, isn't it? That that you are not asking and taking. You, it's a, it's a sharing. It's a it's a, it's a joint uh, endeavour. Well, it's not just a sharing. You are offering an opportunity, and if you're good at what you do, you basically make sure they understand what the opportunity is. Mm. And you know, in life, you can buy you know a silver pair of shoes, if that's what turns you on. But it may even be better to actually put that money into a scholarship or whatever and have the joy of knowing that somebody who's bright but not well endowed in terms of money can basically do something. Mm. Uh, you know, It can be an even greater joy. And our job in the give and get department is to convey that to somebody who's in a position to give. Mm. And then we don't judge. And I think that I think it's actually a terrific role. And if you take that attitude, I'm surprised that anybody really has a problem with doing it. Mm. Mm. David, one of the things that um, I've noticed sitting on two non-profit advisory boards that you chair is the first thing probably that, that, that really jumped out at me was that you use humour and self-deprecating humour a lot. Is that a deliberate thing or is that just part of your personality? Well, uh, firstly, you can be on any committee I chair if you think that my humour <laughs> is funny. I, I basically, uh, I, I do use it because it's part of me. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, my late father, he was a very humorous joke teller. I guess I picked up a few things. I enjoy lightening the load for people, making them feel a bit happier. And I hope, and often, by the way, particularly with the students at the uni, they remember the humorous bits much more than my serious bits. And I think that's great. Mm. So I, that's the way I try and communicate. It makes me feel better. I hope it makes the meeting you know, move on in the right direction yeah. uh, much better. Yeah, then the second thing I, I notice, so I go back and think about it, is that the other thing um, that's very clear is that you're able to give everybody the opportunity to, to contribute, but keep things to time and, and, and reach a conclusion. So that's a real skill. How, is that something that just came naturally to you, or is it something you've developed or, or maybe seen in other people? No, I think that it's something you learn, to be honest. The first thing is, the thing that comes naturally to me is I like people. And I think it would be very hard to be a good chairperson or indeed a good teacher or whatever if you don't like people. So I start with the premise that people have something to add. So I want to hear it. And by the way, the number of good points that have come, not from myself, totally amazes me, you know, and that's a mixture of arrogance or whatever. It's just fantastic what people think through of all elks in life. Mm. You know, I've had the guy who drives me around occasionally in Melbourne, God, he's got some good points on what's going on. I listen. Mm. It's worth it. So the first thing is, if you enjoy people and think they're meritorious, that makes it easier. The second thing is, I believe strongly that if you're on a board, you're entitled to have your view. And my job is to make sure that everybody has their view but doesn't dominant, dominate. The most important thing in a meeting is to make sure that people are not too quiet but also not too noisy. There are many who will try and take the meeting and take it as their own. Sometimes, by the way, they do that for themselves. Mm. Sometimes they want their point 
to, to win. Mm. Either way, your job as the chair is to allow everyone to contribute. But when somebody is repeating themselves for a second time, maybe that's okay. When they're repeating themselves the third time, it's too late. Basically, people should have heard them at least the first time, if not the second, and that's my job and that's how I, I think. So I think as chairman, you've got to respect people, let them all contribute, but you've got to work. I mean, I've been in many board meetings where the chair basically sits back and relaxes. No chair can do that. Because when you relax, the meeting will take a life of its own. Mm. And in general, that's not a good thing. So, so how do you... What's, what's the distinction between someone who sits there and says, I'm a director on this board, and the person who sits there and says, I'm the chair? What's the difference in the, in the role? I see the chair as the coordinator. I've always seen that. Um, I don't know that the chair is any more important than anybody else around the table, other than often he or she presides over how much information comes to the board and information is power. Leaving that to one side, when you're in the room, the chair's role is the conductor. It is your job to make sure everybody in that orchestra, in that committee, basically is heard and feels as though they've had an adequate say. That then said, you've got to direct that orchestra towards the crescendo and ultimately to finish the piece. I've seen many chairs never address the actual issue. And at the end of the meeting, everybody says, gee, that was great, we talked and so on, but what did we achieve? Mm. So my job is to let everybody talk, but direct the meeting to make decisions. By the way, make decisions not in my epithet. In other words, I, I, the fact that I think something's important is not that relevant. Mm. I think what one's got to do is to direct the meeting to cover the resolutions that are in the agenda in a way that everybody contributes, plenty of discussion, but a decision is made and people leave that room saying, well, if I didn't agree with that, at least I understand why it was agreed to. That's it for this episode of How I Did It. For more from CODA, visit codacapital.com or email philanthropy at codacapital.com.